Welcome to the year in review in London sports. 2021 was such a difficult year in so many ways for so many people. But for so many athletes and teams in London, it was it was spectacular. It was historic. Canada's Olympic success at the Tokyo Games featured Londoners front and center again and again. Medal after medal, gold after gold after gold after gold. The Western Mustang football team captured the Vanier Cup, their second in the last four sports seasons. For the first time since 1975, the London Majors climbed to the top of the mountain in inter-county baseball. Overall, it really was a tremendous year in sports for London. And we will talk about all of it, the good, the great, the challenging aspects too, all in the next 60 minutes. And we are going to begin at the Olympics in Tokyo, where one statistic tells a remarkable story. Canada as a country won seven gold medals at the Tokyo Games. Londoners outright won or had a key role to play in more than half of those gold medals. Four of the seven. One city being that big a part of one country's success. Even though London is known as the Forest City, what do you think? Could it be time to add another nickname? London, Ontario? Championship City. Let's start with Maggie McNeil. From the Aquatic Club to the top of the mountain, Maggie McNeil won Canada's first gold medal in Tokyo, capturing the 100-meter butterfly, something that has become her signature event. And she did it in dramatic fashion. Maggie was in seventh place at the turn with 50 meters to go, but when she hit the wall, she was first. Always with that same calm, chill demeanor. My coach always reminds me that the pool is the exact same length. So that's something that I like to remind myself of if I get too nervous. It's like you've done it hundreds of times before, and it really is no different. It took Maggie a few seconds to actually realize what she had done. She can't wear her glasses in the pool, and by the time she was able to make out her name on the scoreboard, well, the rest of the world was already celebrating. About 200 people gathered at the Oxford Drive-In in Woodstock to watch Maggie swim on the big screen. They knew right away. They were as socially distanced as they could be, but the cheer that went up from vehicle to vehicle was as good an attempt at being heard in Tokyo that anyone in southwestern Ontario could muster. London Aquatic Club coaches Andrew Craven and Liz Moskal watched it unfold, and through the eyes of coaches, they saw the little things that the rest of us might have missed. As Liz Moskal describes, Maggie's lane position in lane seven made what she did even more remarkable. You always want to be in one of those middle lanes. When they set it up, they set it up in a bit of a V formation. So there's a bit of a wake that comes out to the edge of the pool and it can get a bit of bounce back and get a little rougher on the outside lane. So for Maggie to dive in and do what she did at a lane seven was just amazing, but it just shows the amount of determination that she has. Just incredible. But when you look at Maggie McNeil and why she's such a phenomenal swimmer, head coach at the London Aquatic Centre, Andrew Craven, says it's not what you see, it's actually what you can't see. It's the underwater segment that clearly she is, well, I guess we can say now, the best in the world at. Um so, you know, when she was young and, and was, was just starting out, and, and we as coaches have always emphasized to your swimmers, once it became clear that doing the underwater dolphin kicks was a really valuable skill to develop and nurture, uh, you know, for our youngest swimmers, we're always telling them to try and take three underwater dolphin kicks off every push off the wall. 
And, you know, Maggie always did what her coaches told her and she started at three kicks and now she does 10. The key is, you know, we tell our swimmers, okay, you know, you know, do well, we're, we're talking to our older swimmers about doing six kicks. So, you know, a lot of them will do six kicks and, and sure that's fine. But Maggie's key is, well, we talk about, you know, you want to go as far as you can underwater as fast as you can. So that's great if you can go the whole 15 meters underwater, but if you're not doing it fast, it doesn't, it doesn't really, you know, amount to much. So Maggie's trick is that she takes those 10 kicks and every single one of them is done with the maximum amount of power. And she is able to maintain her streamline so, so well, better than, better than most. And so, yeah, that's, that's her, that's, well, it's not her secret weapon anymore, but it's her biggest weapon. The gold in the 100 fly kicked off what would be a memorably metal-filled games for Maggie McNeil. She won silver in the 4x100-meter freestyle relay. She won bronze in the 4x100-meter medley. McNeil then returned to the University of Michigan and signed a sponsorship deal with Speedo, thanks to the relaxing of NCAA rules for endorsements. And she also put together a brilliant showing at the FINA World Swimming Championships, but more on that later. As we continue to look back at the Olympics, let's stay in the water. Well, on the water. As we have a look at Londoner Suzanne Granger, fifth seat from the women's eight in rowing. Canada drew into a heat in Tokyo with reigning world champion New Zealand and came so close to winning that heat. New Zealand edged out Canada by inches and sent them to the repechage. Canada won that repechage, and that set up a spot in the gold medal race. Lane two, back beside the defending world champs. What is it like to row a women's eight in a gold medal race? Well, you have to deal with the pain that rowing at that level brings. You have to accept it. You have to overcome it. And as Suzanne Granger tells us, that is the difference that gives you the chance to win. The only free strokes in a race are probably the first 15 to 20 out of the start uh, that you can do as hard as you want, as fast as you want, and you won't pay for it later. We knew that we had the fitness to go out as hard as we could at the beginning and be able to hold it. And so going into the last 1,500 meters of a race like that, you've been in pain already probably from the after the first 30 seconds of the race, it really starts to set in. Um, but going through that last 500 is where your brain starts telling you, this is very painful, please stop. And you sort of just shut that brain, not shut that voice off and say, no, we're fine. We're going to keep going. Um, but when you do that, I start to experience tunnel vision. So my peripheral sort of will go black my hearing gets really fuzzy. Uh, it almost feels like the ears are plugged. Um, and you can't really pinpoint exactly what hurts. It's sort of this like abyss of full body pain. It's like when you've done a bunch of squats or you've walked up the stairs a million times, you get that burn in your legs that's sort of all over in your body saying, please let me relax. Um, and at this point, you've probably gotten pretty close to your max heart rate. So there's a lot going on, and I think that's why it's so important in the woman's eight to trust your coxswain. Um, she's our fearless leader. She sits up there in the front and tells us what to do and steers the boat and keeps us on track. So going through that last 1,500-meter mark, she kept saying, stay with me, stay with me, because we you know, watched previous racing, and we saw that focus was really the big game changer for people at this part in the race. But in order for us to keep our heads in the boat, she, keep, she lets us know where we are in a race. In this race, she, in our last 10 strokes, said to us, you are going to be Olympic champions. And I, I remember not really being able to process what she said between the pain and the shock of that statement. And 
thinking, oh my, oh my gosh, like, seriously, is this real? And crossing the finish line, I think as we crossed the finish line, she was out of her seat and screaming and yelling and everyone was, you know, so excited and so much shock and pain all at the same time. Um, but you hear a, there's a buzzer at the finish line, like a big air horn that goes off so that you know that you've crossed. And a lot of the times I like, I won't hear it because of tunnel vision and being in pain, but that's the one sound that you definitely listen for when you get to that point. Um, but they also have a board that goes up uh, near the finish line that will list the ranking that you've crossed the finish line in. And that's particularly helpful, especially if there's a photo finish. So you can eventually see like what you did place. And I remember looking at the board so many times to check to see that our name was actually number listed as number one and being so surprised because as an athlete, visualization is so important. And so we've visualized crossing the finish line. We've visualized seeing ourselves in first and to have it happen in real life was so incredible, but almost unbelievable because that's the moment you've dreamed of. And so when you actually get there, it's so surreal. And so I actually said to the, the woman in front of me, Madison, um, she turned around and looked at me with this unbelievably blank stare and I was like, Madison, like, that's our name. That's our name in first. Like, we're on the board. We did it. This is real. And so it was a pretty cool moment to be able to turn and look up there and say, I didn't just dream that. It's actually happening. That was Canada's second gold medal with a London connection. But there were two more to come. And we will talk about those next as the year in review in London sports continues on 980 CFPL. Let's talk about one of the wildest rides with a massive London connection that we saw in all of sports last year. Name the world's soccer powers. Go ahead. Germany, Great Britain, Brazil, Argentina, Italy, France, the Netherlands, the United States. How far down the list do you have to go to fall on Canada? In women's soccer, even though it might not come to the tip of your tongue, you shouldn't have to go too far. Canada's women's soccer team has been excellent for years. They have finished in fourth at the Women's World Cup. Going into Tokyo, they had won back-to-back -back bronze medals at the Olympics. But Tokyo, Tokyo was different. Two Londoners, Shalina Zadorsky, defender, and Jesse Fleming, midfielder, were representing Canada yet again, both approaching 100 caps for Canada. Canada did not have a sensational start at the tournament at the Tokyo Olympics. A 1-1 draw with host Japan put Canada in a tough position with Chile and Great Britain in their group. They would need some strong performances to ensure they got out of that group. Janine Becky scored twice against Chile, and Canada held on for a 2-1 victory in their second match. And then Canada almost beat Great Britain. They ended up with a 1-1 draw, and that was good enough for second place in their group. And that's when things began to get magical. The quarterfinals set Canada up against Brazil. Not an easy start in the knockout stage, and it was not an easy match. Nil-nil into penalties. Christine Sinclair was stopped on Canada's first attempt, but Jesse Fleming scored, and then Canada kept scoring. And goalkeeper Stephanie LeBay stopped two penalties, and Canada advanced to the semis against the United States. The game against the U.S. stayed scoreless for the first half, scoreless into the 74th minute, and that's when American defender Tierna Davidson was called for a foul after her left foot hit Deanna Rose's leg just inside the penalty area as they chased after a loose ball. The play was reviewed, and a penalty kick was awarded. Christine Sinclair 
chose London's Jesse Fleming to take it in a move that would not only signify a symbolic passing of a torch, it would actually be key for Canada's success. Fleming made the kick. Canada survived a late push from the Americans and advanced to the gold medal match against Sweden. That match happened on August 6th. The match time had to actually be changed because of the exhaustive heat in Tokyo. It was pushed to nighttime, 9 p.m. in Yokohama, and Sweden struck first in the 34th minute. They scored. In the second half, Christine Sinclair drew a penalty kick and, reminiscent of the semi, again gave the ball to Jesse Fleming. And again, Jesse Fleming stepped up and made the kick. No one scored after that. Extra time solved nothing, and penalty kicks were required to decide the gold medal winner. Fleming took Canada's first penalty and scored yet again. But the first 10 kicks were dominated by the keepers and the misses. Two saves from Stephanie LeBay set up pure drama. Sweden with a chance to score and capture gold. Only Carolyn Seeger put her shot over the bar. And Canada's Deanna Rose tied it to force sudden death. A Sweden miss sent Julia Grosso to the spot, and she scored. And the families of Jesse Fleming and Shalina Zadorsky celebrated along with the rest of the country. John Fleming and Mary Zadorsky spoke with 980 CFPL Sawyer Bogdan. Oh! Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Amazing group of ladies. They deserved it. Uh, unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. I mean, uh, you know... They're just an amazing group of, of girls. I mean, Jesse and Shalane have been friends for years. I'm friends with the parents. It's just incredible to be over here watching it with them. And yes, uh, no words can say what a gold is. Both of them have two medals and at, at their age is incredible. New chapter in the book. They can close this one. Wow. Well, we had all planned on being in Tokyo. So, I mean, we thought we'd be celebrating with them, but um, just, just proud. I mean, absolutely proud. It takes a, lo- a lot of people. It, just take the village, that's for sure. I've had a lot of, Shalina and Jesse both have had a lot of people on their side and helping them, so it's amazing. Oh, they're just, they're two amazing ladies. Jesse and Shalina have known each other for so long. They're amazing ladies. They're great representatives and ambassadors for London. Uh, girls soccer is just going to take another giant leap after this. This is amazing. They're beautiful, humble, talented, compassionate good girls (laughs) on top of being uh you know athletically gifted so we have maggie mcneil suzanne granger jesse fleming and shalina zadorsky and that leaves one more gold in tokyo with a london connection as damian warner was growing up and attending montcalm secondary school in london he wasn't the kind of person who made himself stand out one of his teachers then and one of his coaches now dennis nielsen talks about it. We just finished the uh, first year of basketball. Gunnar and I coached senior boys basketball at Montcalm and it was Damien's first year and just to, uh, to show you the, how quiet and, and unassuming he was at that time, in one year of basketball under Gar's head coach role, he never said one word to Gar the entire season. But as Warner got into track and as he got into decathlon, he stood out. He and his coaches came into 2021 with a goal, win Olympic gold. The pandemic, well, it changed plans. It made training incredibly difficult. Damien was in London. He and his partner, Jen Cotton, had just had a son, Theo, so he wanted to be close to home. But training facilities all over were shut down. 
So Warner and his coaches set up at Farkasin Arena in Old South in London, right next to South Secondary School. Being an arena, picture it. You couldn't run a full 100 meters. You couldn't throw a javelin as far as it would go. But Damien made do. He would run into high jump mats. He would throw into blankets dangling from the ceiling. And for the first time in a long time, he was able to enter competition completely healthy. The biggest non-world championship meet or Olympic meet for decathletes and heptathletes takes place in Gotzis in Austria. And that's where, in the long jump, Damien received a sign, even before the Olympics, that his training had been solid and that this year might just give him a chance at something special. You can see from the video that I was a little bit surprised when I landed because I knew that it was a big jump. When I was in the air, I was like, I was thinking to myself, like, I should be hitting the ground by now, like, based off my previous jump. And uh, I was just up in the air a little bit longer than usual. And when I landed and I kind of looked back at the pit, they have little markers there that show like six, seven, eight meters. And I saw that I was well past the eight meter mark and I knew that it was a big jump. And I was kind of just waiting to see what the official said, if it was a fault or if it was legal. And um, he put up the white flag and yeah, it was just uh, excitement from there on. A Canadian record. And he wasn't finished there. Damian Warner came within five points of doing something that only three other athletes had ever been able to do. He came that close to 9,000 points in the decathlon, finishing with 89.95. But that was more than enough of a springboard into Tokyo. As Damian set up his blocks in the first event at the Tokyo Games, you would think he was ready, in rhythm prepared to go out and achieve that goal that they had set, that goal of Olympic gold. I felt like I was in a great mental space um, all year, like just working with my coaches and working with the, the guy that I do uh, for mental coaching, J.F. Menard. I feel like we just had a plan. We knew the routines and stuff that we wanted to do. Uh, when I was warming up, um, I felt pretty good. Um, but then there was like a moment before the race where you have to go out and you have to set your blocks and you get to test them before they do, do the introductions. And when I was testing them, um, I just didn't feel very good. So I ran back, set my blocks up again, tried to go out again and didn't, didn't feel good. And I was just like, what's going on? You know, and then uh, they called us out. We went behind the blocks. And then after that, it was just kind of like, as soon as the gun went, it was just kind of kicked in some adrenaline and just raced. And uh, yeah, I felt really strong, really powerful. And I knew that when I crossed the line, the time was going to be fast. Uh, and it was tied my personal best and then decathlon record. And yeah, that's a great start. Well, Damien won that opening event and just kept going from there. He led after day one. He led through the heat of day two, heading into the final event of the decathlon, the 1,500 meters. Warner had the lead in points, and he also had 9,000 points in his sights yet again. I was warming up in like the, the mix zone or the call room right before I went out, and I was talking to another athlete, and he's like, oh, what, what kind of pace are you trying to run? And I told him, like, I'm trying to run 433.85, anything faster than that. And he's like, oh, what's that for? And I told him, like, 9,000 points. And he's an athlete that I competed against in GOATSIS, so he's like, oh, you get another opportunity, you know? And he told me, like, you better get it this time, because if you don't get it this time, you're never going to get it. And I was just like, oh, no pressure. Um, so, like, Gar and I, we, we had a plan. We knew that at 1,200 meters, I had to come through in around 340. Um, but my pacing in the race was much slower, and I know all the people back home were kind of, like, yelling at me to pick it up. Um, but when I, I got to that, that mark, 1,200 meters, I think I was like six seconds behind the pace. And uh, from then on, I knew I had to pick it up if I wanted to get the 9,000 points. And luckily enough for me, I was able to get it by a couple seconds. You got moving over those last 300 meters 
what was that like? I mean, are you are you at a stage where you can even remember those 300 meters? Or did your brain just say, okay, <laughs> listen to that guy that I was talking to before. Uh, I got to get this now. Let's go. Yeah, so like when I uh, when I got to the 1,200-meter mark, when I had 300 meters left, I was just like shocked because I was like, oh, I'm six seconds behind the pace. I have to pick it up, you know? So I had like a, a little burst of adrenaline. And I thought back to like the words that that guy said, and I thought back to Goats being like, oh, no, I'm going to miss this by five points again. And then I thought about like when my mom said like, oh, when you're running that 1500, run like you have to run five points faster. Um, so like I started running and the only thing I remember is like going down like the last like 100 meters. And uh, I was just thinking about like all these different things. Like it, it's weird. Like you're thinking about like how the year went and uh, kind of the journey and all the hard work that you put in. And uh, I just wanted to run and I sprinted as fast as I can. And like I was saying, luckily enough, I got it by a couple points and uh, joined that elite club of uh, three other guys. When did you know? When did you know, not necessarily about the gold medal, but when did you know about 9,000 points? Well, I, I didn't know. I didn't know if I got it because, like, the thing that happens when you're running those races is that the clock stops when the first person, like, crosses the line. And there was a guy that crossed the line right before me, so the clock stopped. So I couldn't really tell if it was, like, um, 33 or 35 or 30. So I didn't know what it was. And it wasn't until, like, the, the score came up on the big screen uh, that I saw. And I was just like, oh, thankfully, because there was a... a thought in the back of my head that I, I was thinking that I missed it so uh thankfully that wasn't the case did you know gold was yours at that point though did that feel a little more secure yeah I think I think going into that 1500 and the reason why I ran the first like uh 1200 meters so calm was because I knew that I had the gold medal locked up I think that the next competitor had to beat me by like 48 seconds in the 1500 and uh, that's a tough task for for anybody to do so um, my only goal at that point was obviously to finish the race because uh, you don't want to fall or trip or and all those thoughts are going through your head. Um, but at the same time, like I wanted to, to get that 9,000 points and I knew that I had another opportunity after Coatsis. And uh, yeah, it was just a great year for me, you know, to score 89.95 and then scored 9,018 points in my two decathlons uh, and finish the season healthier. I couldn't ask for uh, anything better. Olympic champion, one of four athletes ever to eclipse 9,000 points in the decathlon, Damian Warner. But the year wasn't over for him. He was named flag bearer for the closing ceremonies, and there was another honor still to come. More on that later. 2021 was an exceptional year in London sports for some, but not for all. That story as we continue in our year in review of London sports on 980 CFPL. 2021 was an exceptional year for some, but the start in some leagues was not about who was going to win, but instead who was even going to be able to play. The Ontario Hockey League, the Greater Ontario Junior Hockey League, the National Basketball League of Canada, League One Ontario in soccer, Canadian professional soccer, even the Canadian Football League that had lost an entire season was trying to determine what to do and how to come back. And week after week, optimism rose and optimism fell, kind of like the momentum of a game. But at least early on, it remained. I remain committed to working with the NHL, the MLB, the CFL, and other leagues who have teams in Ontario. Once their health and safety protocols are in place, we'll look forward to seeing a return for them as well. I'll also continue to work with our amateur and minor sports programs 
to best prepare. Lisa McLeod, the Minister of Sport, Heritage, Tourism and Culture, was front and center. She held that button that would turn on the green light. But she wasn't the only one. In the Ontario Hockey League, for example, London Knights General Manager Mark Hunter and OHL Commissioner David Branch, they held on to a whole lot of hope. So much is out of our control. And uh, we're just remaining optimistic. We've got total commitment from all our teams. Uh, and uh, that in itself has really been a positive for me, a real strong takeaway. Hopefully we can get the numbers down, Mike, and, uh, you know, the borders open. But day after day, week after week, the optimism started to wane. And eventually, despite a final glimmer of hope on April 20th, 2021, the OHL's commissioner informed everyone that the OHL season had been officially canceled. The past week has been maybe one of the lows, of course, uh, as we had to... Uh, you know, acknowledge that there was just no practical, reasonable way uh, that we could get started. And, and that's so hurtful, you know, to all our players. And, and we recognize that. And to our fans. And then managers like Mark Hunter had to inform players. You know what? It really sinks in right now, Mike. And, uh, you know, we got off the call here with our players and had a Zoom call with everybody. And, you know, you can see some, you know, sad faces. And, you know what? It's a. Uh, it's a weird day and it's a it's a sad day so it's uh, it's kind of it's kind of devastating to all of us and players like Mark Woolley of St. Thomas a member of the Owen Sound attack were left with the fact that they weren't going to have a season I'm not going to sugarcoat it it's it's frustrating from there there was no choice but to look ahead to next season a draft lottery was held in the OHL to determine selections of 2005-born players. The OHL priority selection took place, and eventually training camps and a season began. The Greater Ontario Junior Hockey League faced much the same fate. Its teams hit the ice a couple of times, even played scrimmages with no contact rules and no face-offs. Players had to tag up by going out to the blue line after a puck was frozen by a goalie or out to the red line after a goal was scored. It gave a chance to play a form of hockey, but it wasn't long before the coaching mind saw through the rule changes. They would fire pucks down the ice, create races. They would be ready for those tag-ups. The fastest, the quickest players on the ice gave their teams massive advantages. U16 players tried the same. So did some minor hockey leagues. But ultimately, they started 2021 with practice time and ever-changing rules and regulations. Dress outside, wear your skates into the rink. Winter sports like minor basketball dealt with similar circumstances. OCAAs and OUA winter seasons were scrapped. And the NBL of Canada could not get off the ground and hasn't even returned yet. The plan is to be back in 2022, but with quite a different look. Only four NBL Canada franchises are set to play. The London Lightning, the KW Titans, the Sudbury Five, and the Windsor Express. No Atlantic teams will play, but the NBL Canada will have crossover games against the Basketball League in the United States. The 2022 season is due to tip off February the 5th. League One Ontario managed to play a shortened season, and FC London saw individual and team success. The women's side went 9-1-2 in premier play and won the regular season crown. They were edged 2-1 by Blue Devils FC in a playoff semi. Striker Jade Kovacevic won the golden boot, leading the league in goals, and Megan Scott 
was named Defender of the Year. Julia Benatti was named Midfielder of the Year. The men's team had their greatest success in reserve play, going 8-2-2. They made it to the Men's Reserve League Final, where on a snowy November Sunday, they lost a tough match 3-0 to the Vaughn Azuri. On November 25th, it was announced that the head coach of both the women's and men's sides, Michael Marcoccia, and FC London were going to part ways. Marcoccia left as FC London's most successful coach. He won League One Ontario Coach of the Year honours three times. Marcoccia quickly made the move east to Peterborough, where he has taken over Electric City FC. The soccer world lost a member of its family on Christmas Eve when Rock Bisacco passed away. Rock taught and coached soccer for 37 years. He was a head coach for the Western Mustangs and was instrumental in growing the game and some of its biggest stars here in southwestern Ontario. One team that missed 2020 took full advantage of their return in 2021. For the first time in 46 years, the London Majors won the Intercounty Baseball Championship and they gave baseball fans in London a ride. The Majors claimed the regular season pennant, winning 22 of the 30 games in a shortened season. London earned a bye through the first round of the playoffs, blazed through the Brantford Red Sox in the second round, and that set up a return to the championship series, this time against the Toronto Maple Leafs. Majors manager Roop Chanderdad had taken teams there in 2006, in 2008, and in 2014, and had come as close as a Game 7 loss to ending a long wait for a title. But Chanderdat went into the best of five with Toronto with the same enthusiasm he carries with him at all times. You know what we wanted to build? We wanted to build up a fan base. You know, we wanted to get the marketing side done. And, you know, Scott and I and everyone involved, Angela, we all did a good job trying to get that piece going and then, you know, building the right thing, building a... You know, a team that everyone could be proud of. London held on to a 4-3 lead through the final two innings to win game one, but Toronto rebounded to tie the series. Eduardo Perez pitched a gem and a Majors win in game three to put them a victory away. But the Maple Leafs found a way to get to extra innings in game four at Christie Pitts in Toronto, and the teams went long into the night, 13 innings before one of the most prolific sluggers in the IBL, Sean Riley, ended the game with a home run to send it back to Labatt Park for a fifth and deciding game on October 21st. Toronto took a 3-0 lead by the third inning, but four runs in the bottom of the third put London ahead, and they never looked back. They led 8-4 in the ninth inning with two outs. Dylan Baker and Noah Smith had the call that will last a lifetime. The moment that was 46 years in the making. Sellout capacity crowd on their feet here in the ninth inning. Here's the 1-2 from Perez. Swing and a miss. It's over. The wait is over, London. Champions of the IBL for the first time since 1975. The Majors were champions. But even though it was late October, that wasn't the final title a London-based team would win in 2021. More on that and how the year ended for two people who played such a prominent role when our look at 2021 in London sports continues. This is 980 CFPL. A monstrous year of sports achievements in London continued into November and December. The Western Mustang football team did not play in 2020. But they hit the field hungry in 2021. They seemed to get better and better every single week. 
An early loss to the Guelph Griffins gave them just enough adversity to reach new levels in games with a first-year quarterback in Evan Hillock, a three-headed backfield of Keon Edwards, Trey Humes, and Edward Wanati, along with receiving weapons like Griffin Campbell and Savon Magne-Jones, and a beast of a defense led by Deontay Knight and bookended by Danny Valente. Western began to roll. Heading into the Vanier Cup against Saskatchewan, they had outscored their opponents 174-42 in the playoffs. And 24 of those points against came in the first half of their first playoff game against the Waterloo Warriors. Western shut out the Warriors in the second half of that game. They were ready once the national championship arrived. But they had to be ready for the field it was about to be played on. The weather in Quebec City was cold, and the field was frozen. And the realization came only the day before the game, less than 24 hours before the game, that the cleats on the feet of the Mustangs weren't going to work for Western. Mustang head coach Greg Marshall said something had to be done. You know, when we first got there, the weather wasn't bad. We practiced outside. It was cold. Um, but then Thursday, they got hit with some, like, snow and freezing rain. And then the temperatures got cold. So they were they had work crew out there chipping ice off the field and putting salt on it and doing as much as they could. But at the end of the day, it, uh, it changed what we had to do footwear. Uh, our cleats, uh, the normal football cleats, would not kind of penetrate the ice. They would just slide all over the place. So it meant going with more of a, you know, molded, almost like a the old artificial turf shoes. I mean, quite honestly, a, a sneaker or a broom ball shoe or anything would have worked better than, than cleats on that field. So we're able to buy some, we're able to borrow some off them. Other, you know, we, we did everything we could to find shoes on Friday night. Um, and they made a difference. So Western headed out. Some players wearing footwear they had never worn before for the biggest game of their lives. Western's first drive wound up in the end zone with Trey Humes, the ball carrier, doing a snow angel. But the Huskies weren't in the Vanier Cup by mistake. They were good. And the game, despite a 24-14 lead late, never quite felt like it was over until the very, very end. I would say even with 14 seconds left, I was like, what? And, and we knew they had no timeouts left. It's like, okay, we just have to down the ball here now. So let's make sure we don't screw it up, uh, just down the ball. So, no, it, that game, you know, they, they had a chance. And it, you know, our, our defense gave up a long drive um, at the end of the game, uh, and they scored with 28 seconds left. And, I, you know, and I, and I know, you know, we, you get frustrated, but at the same time, it was the right decision. We were just going to let them take all the underneath stuff. Don't give them any fast, you know, any big score quickly. Just let them take time off the clock and and move down. So it, it was actually a good strategy. They they onside kicked to us with 28 seconds left. We got the ball and ended the game. But um, yeah, I thought overall our defense played outstanding, and you know, that's a credit to the kids and. and and Coach Gleason and his coaching staff, they were very, very well prepared, as they had been all playoffs. Another London team with another championship. As the year closed out, Damian Warner was awarded the Lou Marsh Trophy as Canada's top athlete. Yeah, this is this is a, a wild year for me. Uh, there, there were so many great athletes. I think there was 24 or 28 athletes that were kind of in the running for the 
for the award, and uh, it could have been a coin flip to to who it could have went to because Canadians had, had such a great year. But uh, I'm really humbled by the award, and um, yeah, it's just I, I don't I don't know what to say. I'm at a loss for words. It's just uh, it's just been a really special year. Maggie McNeil won four gold medals and set a world record at the FINA World Short Course Swimming Championships in Abu Dhabi. For someone like me, um, it's, I like the turns and I like the walls, so it definitely helped us. And I think all the girls on the relay side are especially strong underwater, so we wouldn't have been able to win without that. Now, reminders of COVID-19 never completely left us. In fact, the London Knights had their final two games of 2021 postponed after COVID issues with the Sarnia Sting organization. But if 2022 can be even a sliver as successful for London teams and London athletes, then look out. Thank you to all of the teams and all of the athletes, all of the organizers, from the youngest of the minor levels all the way to the top, who helped to provide the distractions that they did for what was ultimately a trying 365 days. But the break to watch athletes perform was well appreciated, and the accomplishments of those athletes will forever be a part of London's fantastifying sports history. This has been a look back at 2021 in London sports. Thank you so much for being a part of it. All the best in 2022. My name is Mike Stubbs, and this is 980 CFPL.